Welcome to the Francisca Show podcast on JewishCoffeeHouse.com, the show where I give a voice to Jewish issues, topics, and people. I'm Francisca Frady, your host. I am back from Israel, and I have so many incredible experiences from last week. Over the next couple of days or weeks, I will be sharing more about the trip in different forums. But today I wanted to just share a few ideas, sentences, just capturing different moments during my trip. And I'm hoping to have some of the people I met over this trip come onto the show as guests. Overall, it was just incredible and I'm so grateful and blessed to have been able to go. And it was just beautiful to be there, the people with our people and our homeland. The concert was a great success and I'm thrilled that it's over and behind me now. And I can continue working on new projects and ideas. And we definitely have a lot of that going on. I keep forgetting to announce that my new single, Dear Soldiers, out on Spotify and Apple Music. So go check that out. I linked it in the show notes for you. And here are some ideas. I heard a mother talk about living in dissonance of values. A parent referring to acknowledging that they believe their sons should have gone to the army, but chose the Haredi lifestyle and feel guilty. Rav Asher Weiss said that this is a Muhammad mitzvah, but then why isn't he instructing and encouraging Haredim to go to the army? This pain is felt deeply. The unfair realities of different sects in Israel are crystal clear, and that separation is glaring. One detail that I wanted to share with you in this intro is that one of the activities, one of the stops on our trip was visiting an army base and we got a tour of the part of the base where they process the fallen soldiers and identify them. And in general, I've heard before from interviews how all the victims of October 7th are considered people who died al-Kiddush Hashem and do not require tahara when being prepared for burial. So when I stood in the refrigerated room where the fallen soldiers are identified, that's when the commander said that they don't do the tahara. And every action is intentional and alpi halacha in order to give the most respect to the deceased. He also said he chose this unit when he was a soldier because there was no requirement for reserve duty after the initial service. Well, here he was, leading his unit. He said no one on the base knows what happens behind these gates. And he said his wife is working much harder than him and deserves all the credit. So this is all I will share with you in this intro. I hope you enjoy the episode with Stacy Goldman, Yo'atzer Halafa. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast. If you enjoy the show, please tell me, please tell a friend. This is how you support the show. Here we go. Stacey Goldman, welcome to the show. Thank you. So you have a super cool, interesting story, and you also have the perspective of a Yuatzaralacha. So there's so much I want to cover in today's episode. Let's start from the beginning. So I was born and raised in Minneapolis. Two of my great-grandparents were born in Minnesota. So my great-great-great-grandmother's buried in Duluth. So we are true Yankees. And I grew up very connected to my Judaism in a, I guess I would just be a fifth-generation conservative Jew. 
And my synagogue in Minneapolis was one of the first conservative synagogues to be egalitarian. So my bat mitzvah, which is in 1984, it's a long time ago, I prepared with my to lead davening, to lane from the Torah, and I had to go on the Monday and Thursday before to do those things, to read from the Torah and lead the davening while wearing my talis and tefillin, which was completely acceptable and normal even at that time. I ended up giving my that set of tefillin that I owned to my husband, who did not get one for his bar mitzvah. So that's where it went <laughs> when we started dating. Well, it went to good use. Yeah. So my parent, I always paid attention in Hebrew school. I went to an afternoon Hebrew school. If anybody saw an innocent man by the Cone brothers who grew up in Minneapolis, so they feature the Tamatora school bus, which is the bus I took to get there. And I'm very grateful for that education because it was eight hours a week in elementary school and six hours a week in high school, which I think is more hours a week than some Jewish day schools. And my family always wanted me to be a rabbi. And so you were very from conservative Jew. Yeah, we kept a kosher home. We drove to shul every week. But by from, I mean you you learned extra yes. than than your average Orthodox young girl. Potentially. Yeah, I was always in interested in learning. And a lot of my teachers at Tamatora were actually Orthodox rabbis and rabbisons. I really, I, I drunk it all in. And then when I went to college, when I went to Barnard College, is when I really was exposed to serious Jewish learning and I became obsessed. I always give my graduating students at the high school where I teach at Kohelet, I buy for the girls when they graduate travel candlesticks, and I include a note where I say, I am who I am because of girls like you. There were no Kiruv professionals in the early 90s, maybe Chabad, but it wasn't very strong. And it was girls, normal modern Orthodox girls who invited me home for Shabbos and holidays that really influenced me becoming Torah observant. Yeah, let's go more into that. So they were not Kiruv professionals. One of my good friends in college got annoyed when I started to become more religious and would no longer turn her lights on and off for her when I stayed with her for Shabbos. <laughs> so it was just the exposure. So I try to encourage my girls that they should open up their social circles when they get to college and invite people who didn't have that experience growing up to see what it's like for Shabbos. That's beautiful to hear from that perspective. So... Then my sophomore year of college, I decided I was going to go to rabbinical school, and I slowly took on more observance, and my junior year of college is where I met my husband at Hebrew University. It was a thing for very affiliated, connected kids, but not Orthodox, to do something called junior year abroad for your third year of college, and there were, it was 1992-93, I think there were 700 students from outside of Israel who came to just Hebrew University to learn for the year. And my husband and I, every single Shabbos, would spend with different religious family members, distant cousins, like my, you know, third, first cousin, three times removed, or my fifth cousins, or whoever you could find that you are connected with. And they happen to be religious. And my husband, the same thing. He had some closer cousins. And so you were married I, at that point already? No, we started dating right away in the beginning of the year. And every Shabbos, we'd spend together with these different family members. And it really had an impact on me and him in both of us growing in our religiosity. But I still wanted to go to rabbinical school because I had this idea of 
becoming a principal of a Salman Schechter or something and making everybody religious. <laughs> <laughs> and by becoming a conservative rabbi, I would be a fast track to becoming a principal. And then my first year in rabbinical school, I took an education course and I hated it. So there went that idea, even though I'm a teacher now, I can't explain that to you. And as I was becoming more and more observant, I was distancing myself more and more from my tefillin. So I, unlike I think most, I went to Camp Ramaz, so in the summers I'd have my tefillin. And during any vacation I had, my Zadie, who was the gabai of the weekday minion at the conservative synagogue where I grew up, would come pick me up at, I think, 6 a.m. and bring me to minion. And it's something I did willingly, spending time with my Zadie and davening in the minion in the shul with my tefillin. So it wasn't something I abandoned right after my bat mitzvah. I actually kept it up. But as, as I started to become more observant, I began to grow more and more distant to it. And it felt very constricting and claustrophobic. And by the time I was in rabbinical school, which one of the very strict requirements was the donning of tefillin every single day and davening three times a day, I was no longer really doing it. And one of my classmates told on me. <laughs> and so I had to meet with the dean and we had a very nice conversation and I'm really grateful to him. He was able to transfer me into the graduate school instead of the rabbinical school. And I was able to stay with my class, which was a really unusual class for conservative Judaism. I think it was never before and never again. And they created a fast track for those of us who went in with a little more background in Halacha and Gemara. My Gemara rabbi was Rabbi Israel Frankus, who just recently passed away. And he had an incredible impact on me and my learning. So I'm very grateful for that. And at that time, rabbinical students spent their second year in Israel. So my husband and I had just graduated and he was working in New York. He hated commuting on the subway in a suit and tie. You know my husband, so you can imagine that. And mm -hmm. um, he was also excited to leave his job. We like to joke that he was a millennial before his time, leaving his job after less than a year. And we made Aliyah. We moved to Israel. And so that first year, I was not in the rabbinical school, but with my rabbinical school class continuing my education and I got a graduate degree. And then the second year we were living in Israel, I was in Nishmat. And Nishmat had a program that it was a precursor to the Yoetzit program called Machon Gavoa. And it was basically kind of a kolel for women where we got a stipend for learning Gemara and Halakha. So we joke that my husband was a kolel husband while he was doing investment banking for an Israeli bank. And it was also incredible learning. And I guess the irony of my background was that having grown up the way I did and with the education that I received, when I emerged into the Orthodox world of women's learning in the mid-90s, because I'd spent so much time learning Gemara and Halakha, I was sort of at the forefront, a pioneer in all these things. So I was able to get into this Machon Gavoa program at Nishmat, and that was the year that they were interviewing the first class of Yoatzot. So my chavruta from that year became one of the first Yoetzot, and I saw the whole interview process, and I knew my husband and I were returning to America for him to go to graduate school. So I did not interview, but it was something that stayed in my mind as something that I really, really wanted to do eventually. Okay, I have several questions. Number one, <laughs> okay. the shortest one. Did you make Aliyah knowing you'd go back for graduate school or when you came back to the States for graduate school, was the plan to go right back after? 
So it's really embarrassing. How how do you live in Lower Merion? That's my question. <laughs> yeah, it's really embarrassing. Yeah. So my husband was born in Israel, so he's automatically Israeli. My kids are all automatically Israeli. When I made Aliyah, I was already pregnant with my first son, who was born in Israel. So ironically, my grandson is actually a third-generation Sabra, but he'll be the first native Hebrew speaker. <laughs> and I made Aliyah because I thought I needed to to have my pregnancy and birth paid for by insurance. And it's actually a funny uh-huh. story, I think, that speaks well of Israel versus America when it comes to giving birth, is that I, I kind of whispered to the clerk, by the way, I'm pregnant. And she was like, so? <laughs> and I said, isn't that a pre-existing condition? And she looked at me very sternly and she said, pregnancy is not a sickness. <laughs> so that was, that was Israel. But I made Aliyah in any case. Which I'm very great during COVID, especially. I was very grateful to my naive 25 year old self for making Aliyah. It made things a lot easier. Why? Because then we we were in and out of Israel during COVID. And got it. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Thanks for catching me up. The next question is: When your friends told on you that you weren't putting on to fill in, was that because they were concerned you were slacking off the interest in rabbinical school, or because they were concerned that you're you were becoming more orthodox and realizing that you shouldn't be doing that as a woman. Um, Where did it come from? So I don't know. I still don't know to this day who told on me. I think I know what I was going through at that time. So women were accepted at JTS in the conservative movement in the rabbinical school in 1984. And this was 1994 that I entered rabbinical school. So it's still relatively new. And I think everyone was really concerned about everyone else and how their approach to Judaism would impact how people viewed them as a conservative Jew or as a conservative rabbi. So I know like while I was in rabbinical school, discussions about the driving tshuva, being able to drive on Shabbat to synagogue would really rankle me. Like how can I be in the same world as somebody who's going to break Shabbos and drive to shul and calls himself a rabbi? So I think that my not putting on tefillin was scary in terms of how it would reflect on them as something that was a requirement and which was what allowed women to enter the rabbinical school if they took on this obligation. And here I was kind of rebelling against that and not doing this basic minimal requirement. I'm fascinated by this whole world because it's non-halachic, but it's very serious. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's very serious. I And I want to give a lot of credit to the Chevra that I was really a part of, we were in the Beit Midrash from 8 a.m. davening till midnight. And my husband, well, he was my boyfriend at the time we got married after that first year. He lived a block and a half away from me in Morningside Heights. And I didn't see him. I told him I only saw him on Shabbos unless he wanted to join me for my 1130 Parsha Chavrita at night. Like, otherwise, I didn't see him during the week. We were, it was a very serious group of people. We did a very serious learning. He really liked you. <laughs> <laughs> and then before we go into the Yoetzit space, I want to know when you say that you were a pioneer when you entered the Orthodox world with your skills and knowledge and experience in learning, were you disappointed at the level of no, interest? No, God forbid. Or, or levels or opportunities for women to learn? No, because I had amazing opportunities. I was choosing between three different institutions for higher learning for women at the time, like where to where I would land after leaving rabbinical school and the conservative movement. So Nishmat was one of them, but there was also 
I think it was called Bravinders then. It's Lindenbaum now and Matan that all had paid stipends for women's higher learning. So it was like a cornucopia for me. You know, it, <laughs> ironic, I think with the conservative movement, my only option was rabbinical school, really. So this was very exciting. And what I also came to appreciate is that, yes, I had Gemara and Halakha skills. I knew how to open up a page of Gemara and learn, but my Tanakh skills were very weak. And my Hebrew skills, also. I mean, my Hebrew skills were okay, but my Tanakh skills were very weak. And the women I was learning with, all my chavritos in those early years, basically knew Tanakh by heart. Like they were very strong in that. And so even though I was their first Gemara chavruta, they caught up very, very quickly. They had the brains and the skills from their Orthodox upbringing to catch up very quickly. So you weren't exposed to the Hamanam of the more <laughs> right-wing Orthodox communities where the value is on raising children. And not no, learning. I was never exposed to that until I moved to Philadelphia. And then I needed that, actually, because I was struggling as a young mother and I, I needed to go back to basics, I think, on how to incorporate being a mother and dedicating myself to my children into my life after these years of high-level learning. I was struggling with that. And so I was grateful for the people I met and the mentors I made here in Philadelphia that were able to give me that direction in terms of being a mother, a Jewish mother. When you were seeing that first Nishmat program for the U.S. Adalacha, initiative and, you know, completely revolutionary, if I may say so myself, what were your thoughts? Can you just share some of that experience of being on the forefront of something so new within a very traditional culture that's very not open to change? It's such an interesting question and reflects our totally different backgrounds. Because for me, coming out of rabbinical school, <laughs> I was like, it was a damn okay. good. <laughs> no, it, it wasn't a downgrade because I recognized the much higher level learning that would go into this Yoatzad Halakha program as opposed to the rabbinical school program. But I didn't have any sort of appreciation of the lack of that type of opportunity in the Orthodox world because it was all emerging then and I hadn't gr grown up in it. So I didn't never experienced the lack. It was just there when I came into it. <laughs> right. My so questions are really... giving it away. <laughs> how, <laughs> how limited my thinking is and how hard it is for me to put myself in your shoes. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. Even when I entered the Yawatzit Halakha program six years ago, so finally they started a program in the outside of Israel, I think 14 years ago, maybe. The Yoatzit Halakha program, so that was 1995-96 that they were interviewing for the first class. So the first women started learning, 96-90, no, sorry, 97-98, the first women started learning because I gave birth to my son during that year that I was learning in Israel at Nishmat. And then they started the American program, I think 14 years ago. And then I was a part of an experimental group using this brand new technology called Zoom in 2017. And it allowed for women all over North America to be part of this amazing training. And um, thank God, we it was a great program. The Zoom worked great for all of us. And we were able to complete our training. It was great. So what were your biggest changes? But I'll, I'll be a little bit more upfront and say, what were your biggest disappointments, adjustments? 
to orthodoxy because you came from a serious background? That's where my question is coming from. So that's a really interesting question. I would say I haven't, I didn't experience any disappointment in orthodoxy. I had a really weird education because I came into the orthodox world with these textual skills. But when we moved to Philadelphia, my son started kindergarten and he came home singing about Midos, the marvelous Midos machine. I didn't know what Midos were. I'd never heard of that before. I'd been Shomer Shabbos for 10 years and I had no clue what that was. So as much as I might have been disappointed at the lack of opportunity for women's higher level learning in Philadelphia when we moved here, I was at the same time seeing this whole door opening up of all these things I didn't know, like Midos. <laughs> what else? I had, I had zero hashkafa. Like up until that point, everything to me was purely intellectual. It was all academic. It was like fun brain candy, learning Gemara, learning Parsha, Mikrat Gedolot, all those things. It was just purely intellectual. And we moved here and I was meeting people who we're using Torah to make themselves better people. And that was a completely foreign concept to me. And it was really humbling and even humiliating to see how much I, how far I'd gotten in my learning, but not to have applied it to my life at all. And so I, as much, so I, I felt like I was going back to ground zero. I had so much to catch up again. How old were you? And to learn 30. And how many kids do you have by then already? Three. My oldest was in kindergarten. So that's being orthodox already for a while and still yeah. not knowing. Wow. Yeah. So I think that's something really special about, I don't know if it's special about Philadelphia, where people really are growth-oriented. I'm kind of skipping around in my life, but that also, in terms of back to, going back to having made Aliyah, so, and I didn't answer your question fully, yes, we fully expected to that my husband would go to business school and we'd be back five years maximum to Israel. And anybody who told me otherwise, I'd get really angry at them. And I'd probably be angry at myself knowing I live in suburban Philadelphia. But this is my rationalization, but I actually think it's a good one. Had we made Aliyah, I feel like we would have been double immigrants, meaning immigrants to Israel from America, but also immigrants to Orthodox Judaism. And I think that my children would have ended up very different than they are today. And I'm, I'm just really grateful that we landed in Philadelphia in this community with your aunt and uncle, right? Rabbi Levine and Rabbi Sin Levine. That's your aunt and uncle? Great Was? aunt and uncle. Yeah. Right. Great aunt and uncle. And then Rabbi Schumann and all of the teachers at Torah Academy. And I felt like when my son was in kindergarten, I was also in the Orthodox Jewish day school kindergarten that I never experienced and got my own very basic education. Okay, thanks for answering that question. I spoke to a rabbi today. I asked him in anticipation of our conversation, do you ever refer your congregants to a Yoetz HaDalacha? He actually said something very interesting. He said he doesn't give Nida Psak to his own congregants. He outsources them to a different rabbi who doesn't live in that same local space. Everything else he's happy to be because he's like, I'm going to be seeing them at my shul. So I don't need to know who's Nida and who's not Nida. Um, 
So he defers out to that. But he said, if it makes more people keep halacha, then I'm all for it. That was his response. So I think that wow. would be a beautiful preface to our conversation about Yuatzar Halacha. Yeah, it's such an interesting approach by that rabbi. We hosted a bunch of college students who are interested in going into Jewish education, and they intern like once a month or something here at Kohelet, and they come for the weekend. And so we had them for Shabbos lunch. And there was a young man who goes to YU, and his Rebbe, who I won't say who it was, had clearly inculcated in him whatever his attitudes about Yohatzot HaLachal were. And this lunch turned into him basically asking me question after question. And the cognitive dissonance that he so clearly was experiencing, that the way I was answering these, his questions was not the way his Rebbe had presented Yohatzot HaLachal, and that, that I was presenting. So can you illustrate it? <laughs> so that I was displaying something clearly that there was no, I don't like using this term because I think I am a feminist for the most part, but not in the way maybe of mainstream media. So that I wasn't displaying a feminist agenda with a slippery slope of going beyond Yoetzit Halakha, that I was consulting with my Rav several times a week on Shilas that I knew that I, that I needed a psak, that I needed a rabbi to answer. And just my respect for the halachic process in every question I get as a Yoetzit. And he, he was, she just kept asking me questions. He couldn't believe it. It was, it was a very <laughs> uncomfortable moment, but I think that I presented you so well, I hope, and that he went away from it. I don't know, having different idea than whatever his Rebbe had instilled in him. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience when you started out versus now, like how things have evolved? When I started the program, I actually did it for selfish reasons. I figured I had been teaching a really long time. This was a great opportunity for a sabbatical of sorts to just immerse myself in learning again in a way I hadn't in a really long time. And I was just going to learn and I wasn't going to do anything with the learning. It was all going to be just lishma. And then as I got more and more into the learning and I realized, unlike however many years ago, 26 years ago, how revolutionary it was, it wasn't until I was actually immersed in the program that I realized how revolutionary it was and how I was going to be one of 30-something women by the time I finished the program with this body of knowledge, with this education, and that it would be extremely selfish of me to remain selfish about this learning. And I had a responsibility and an obligation both to Nishmat for training me and to the women of the Jewish community to help women with my body of knowledge, with this expertise that I'd just been trained in. And I find as a Yoetzit, first of all, I've had a few women call me in tears, barely able to get their question out because it's the first time they're asking a question, that they feel comfortable asking a question, that there's an address where they feel comfortable. And so that's been really gratifying. And second of all, my ability to explain based on my knowledge, the background behind a lot of these halachot so that women feel much more comfortable keeping them and keeping them accurately and not being more strict on themselves, which is what most more, most women would do in a time when they had, when they were unsure and not asking questions, they would just be more strict and wait another day or even two before going to the mikvah because of what they thought was something which turned out not to be anything. And I was able to explain to them the whole halachic development, how that happens 
in a way that they never understood before because nobody gets this education. And another th- way that I think that Yawasid Halakha is really useful is helping a woman to formulate the shaila, helping her to figure out what the question is with all of the background information that goes into that. And some of the questions that Yawasid are able to ask a woman, it wouldn't be appropriate for a rabbi to ask that question, and they might not always get. So do you think women who go to a rabbi are disadvantaged, or their husbands who go to the rabbi? are disadvantaged because I don't think they're going to be schmoozing together about the circumstances. (laughs) (laughs) They just want to get out of, the husbands usually want to get out of the conversation as fast as possible. Right. So so I want to be very careful how I answer this question. And that's why I think one of my roles is not in replacing the rabbi, but in being a conduit to the rabbi, in helping the woman formulate the shaila, which then she can go to the rabbi with this information herself and ask the question with all the pertinent details, or I'm happy to ask the question for her. I don't want to get in the way of a woman's relationship with her Rav. I want to be a help in so that the Rav can answer the question in the best way possible. Any other examples of people questioning your title or your position? What has been some of the pushback? I don't, oh, I have had some pushback, but and there was one rabbi who didn't understand why a woman needed to do all that learning. He understood that Kala teachers should be better educated, but he didn't understand why a woman would have to learn every shach and taz on the shulchan aruch. So that was a little annoying. But, <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a rabbi that sometimes I call for shilas if the circumstances warranted, and he's happy to answer my questions and talk to me. So he's still, you know, respectful of me and me asking him questions. So I don't hold it against him. But I think that was the only real pushback I have. Most of the time when I explain to people what the education was like, they're shocked and surprised and they're impressed usually. And it changes their view of what a Yawatzad Halakha is for the better. Which is essentially, we're not feminists and trying to be rabbis, but we are in a unique position to help a certain part of the population that is in a very vulnerable space and exactly. needs this help and guidance. Yeah, the, the story I always like to tell from my understanding of the evolution of Yoetzot, Rebunit Hankin as a Rebetzin in Eretz Yisrael dealt with a lot of women who had very frustrating experiences with rabbis, with asking questions about Taraz Mishpacha. And one area in particular where there's something you've probably heard of called halachic infertility. So yeah. actual halachic infertility isn't... share that just yeah. in case somebody doesn't. So I'm going to explain what it is. The actual halachic infertility is very rare and, and might in fact be an underlying case with fertility in general and not just halachic. But what it is, is if a woman ovulates before going to mikvah. So what was happening, or probably what still is happening is women would do their bidikot and see something. And because they were too embarrassed to ask, didn't want to ask, they would just say, okay, I'll wait another day until I can get a really clean bidika. And they would end up waiting, having a six-day period, seven-day period, eight-day period, nine-day period. And then to wait the seven clean days, that could be a total of 16 days. And she would have already ovulated and she wouldn't have been able to get pregnant. So when the Nishmat hotline opened up, which was, I think, twenty around 25 years ago, 
They started keeping track of the number of women who became pregnant simply because they now had a comfortable space in which to ask their questions. And they stopped keeping track after thousands of cases like this. And I even heard a couple of stories of women naming their babies after their yoetzet. Because <laughs> they were so grateful. <laughs> so, and I've had a couple of cases like that where I've been able to help women get to the mikvah much earlier than they thought they could because it's not read. And they don't understand yeah. that. They think it has to be. It's, it's all in the, in the words that we use, which can be very confusing. We call it the seven clean days. But really, we have to understand it as seven halachically clean days. And halachically clean just means it's not read. And that's a whole yeah. training in and of itself to figure out what's read and what's not read. I have a couple of friends yeah. who would bring their questions to the rabbi in this community that they had the least relationship with, sort of like the rabbi you consulted with, who said he didn't want to know this about his congregants. So they would go to the rabbi they had the least relationship with. And then they only found out after years of doing this, that rabbi was colorblind and he would actually bring the Maros to the rabbi that they had the closest relationship with. To <laughs> Let's talk about some more examples of questions, Shiloh's cases that women may have, just because people will be listening to this and we do have a lot of the more right-wing communities who listen to the show and who still think it's very odd or not really okay, or even if it's okay, it's not what we do. They would want, have to challenge their husbands and they don't want to have to do that. So maybe bringing some examples of just making this relatable and accessible to people who still don't right. think it's for them. I get a lot of questions about technical things that a woman wouldn't she would again, she would have been stringent on herself because she didn't want to bother the rest. So she calls me because she knows that this is my day job. This is, you know, this is what I do. And she feels comfortable asking me. And then I'm able to clear something up and she's then able to keep the halacha more accurately. What so about so where questions. like context and emotional states make a difference in psyche? Right. Or as you said, when you help women formulate their shilas. So there's several times where I, I'm not comfortable. I'm not in a position to give over an answer for certain questions, but I have all the information in my head. So when I call the rabbi, I can really advocate for the woman given her situation. And I, I'll ask the woman, are there extenuating circumstances? So here's an example of, of something I got yesterday. I don't know if it's such a good example, but a woman did her hafsiktara and then she forgot to do her day one bidika the next day. So she did it the next day. So lechatchila, that would mean that her day one started two days after she did her hafsek tara. Yeah, so that becomes her day one. Now, I said to her, please let me know if there are any extenuating circumstances and I can ask my Rav, because that's the type of information that I have based on my learning, that that is something where under very extenuating circumstances, we could make an exception. Right now, I have the privilege of training with other Yoatzot Halakha to be a fertility counselor. So we're having seminars with experts in every area where fertility would intersect with Halakha. So we had sessions with a male urologist specializing in fertility with an embryologist and how it all works and whether we need hashkacha on the embryos and with psychiatrists, with male licensed social worker who specializes in treating men who are dealing with infertility. 
with miscarriage with selective reduction and all the halacha surrounding that, surrogacy, egg donors, sperm donors, anywhere you think. So I am now in a position to help women navigate the halachic hurdles with fertility issues, which is really amazing that I'm gaining that expertise as well and able to help women in that area. Do you have an example of how you can help someone? So I'm a year and a half into the two-year program for certification. So I'm not out there as somebody can help, but I did happen to get a question from a woman who had called me with other questions. And the fertility specialist she was seeing was not from and was not familiar with any of the halachots of Tarat and Mishpacha. And when she called me, so right away, I could already speak the language. And it was just such a comfort to her to have somebody who spoke both languages, the language of the medical world of infertility and also the halachic world of Tarat Mishpacha. And to know, to have knowledge in both of those areas and be able to guide her on what she could then ask or say to her doctor to make it easier for her to keep the halacha while trying to get pregnant with a baby. Thank God she gave birth to a very healthy baby. So <laughs> that's nice. Um, but that was an example. I don't know if I'm allowed to say, okay, are you thinking of something else? I'm trying to think of other things. I, I'm in a unique position as a Yawatzad Halakha because I'm a Balat Shuva. And I put myself out there in the world, in the less, in the non-religious world. I'm the Yawatzad Halakha also for Young Israel Aish in Las Vegas, which is a key ritual. So I get a lot of great, really interesting out there questions from women who are not necessarily in the Orthodox world, but want to be connected and want to do the right thing. So they call me with really interesting questions. Can we get examples? <laughs> so, okay, my favorite example is a woman who was calling about a sperm donor. Now, she wasn't asking me, can I use a sperm donor, which is controversial in its own right. I'm not going to get into that. She was already having made the decision as a single woman to have a child. Her question was, should the sperm donor be Jewish or not Jewish? So that's a good question. And the answer actually is, it's preferable to have a not non-Jewish sperm donor because as we've seen in many exposés over the last few years where DNA 23andMe has come out, people find that their who they thought was their father isn't their father and they have like 27 biological half-siblings from the same sperm donor. So in terms of halakha, if somebody's not Jewish, they're not halakhically your sibling and you don't get into the same issues of who you can and can't marry. So I told her it should be non-Jewish sperm donor. And then she asked me, but what if it's Zara Amalek? <laughs> she was really concerned about this. So then um, I explained to her, based on a Gemara and Masachet Brachot, where an Ammonite, an Ammoni man asks, wants to marry a Jewish woman and asks if he can join the congregation. And the rabbis debate about it. And then they decide that when Sancherev of Melech Ashur of the Assyrians who conquered the northern kingdom of Israel in the year 710 BCE and completely uprooted them and repopulated them. And then Nebuchadnezzar later in 586 BCE with the destruction of Bayadrishon also uprooted the Jewish people, exiled them, Dalot, and repopulated with other people that these designations of these nations don't really exist anymore. And then she said to me, so she bought that, that she wasn't going to have Zara Amalek. And then she said to me, but I really, really want to give birth to Mashiach. So if it's not Jewish Zera, then how can it be from the line of David HaMelech? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
So I didn't have an answer for her on that, but I had recently read a mimer of the Shem Shmuel that talked about Mashiach ben Yosef. So I said, you know, with, again, the lost tw- 10 tribes when Melech Ashur destroyed the northern kingdom of Yisrael, I said, maybe you'll get the zera of somebody from Shevet Ephraim of Manasseh. So they come from Yosef. That <laughs> was very confusing. They come from Yosef, and maybe they'll be Mashiach ben Yosef if they're not Mashiach ben David. So I didn't hear from her after that. I don't know what happened in the end, but maybe that child is growing up and will be Mashiach ben Yosef. You never know. But that was by far the most out there question I ever got. <laughs> Could you just give one more example to show how a woman reaching out to you changes everything because she's able to share more information? I just feel like it's such a crucial point that people are missing from this whole process. No, it totally is. Let me think. Let's say someone is going through a loss. Let's also say, I don't like, I don't want to put too many culottes out there. So I don't want people to take this in the wrong way. But if somebody's trying to conceive and they're having a really hard time getting to the mikvah, so I can tell them with the guidance of my Rav that they don't have to keep the lichatchila aspect of the shivanikim, white underwear, checking twice a day, every single day. And I, the way I explain it, I say, we have two competing values. We have the value of keeping tarata mishpacha in its most ideal way, but we also have the value of shalom bayit. And when those two values are in competition, we of course keep tarata mishpacha, but we don't keep it in its le- lechatzchila way so that we can maintain a certain amount of shalom bayit. So I feel like women feel a lot better about getting a psak that's right for them. So they're not keeping tarat mishvacha any less or more than any other women. They're keeping it in exactly the perfect way for them in their circumstances and in their situation. Yeah. Does that make sense? I wasn't asking to get more kulo. I was asking because I wanted No, but it's hard to it's hard to answer the question without I think women are more likely to ask when they know they have an address that is expecting them to call and has the time for them to call. So women who wouldn't normally ask questions or wouldn't ask a lot of questions, I feel call me a lot because they know that I have the time and the space for them in a way that maybe they didn't feel from their rough. So I think just my presence allows for women to ask questions, more questions and get more accurate answers for them in terms of what they need to do. Okay, here's a good situation. This isn't, like so many of my examples are non from women, but this is one of my favorite examples. I had a woman, Akala, that I learned with before she got married. And she was marrying a Sephardi guy who going to the mikvah before the wedding was really important to him. And so she was willing to do it for him. But I didn't ask, I didn't know if they're going to keep these laws after they get married. I mean, I tried to encourage it as much as I could in my teaching. But you know, these were totally non-religious people that because he was, she was marrying a Sephardi, this came up. And she called me a year and a half later that they had decided to try to conceive. Could she review the laws with me? Because they wanted to conceive in Tahara. So I think that that's a huge success. It's not, I mean, it doesn't, I wasn't going to get her to start keeping these laws every month. That wasn't where she was at. 
But the fact that I left an impression on her and she felt comfortable calling me a year and a half later because she didn't feel judged. And that's one of the things I really pride myself on is being completely non-judgmental that she could ask to review these laws for me for when it was a, you know, a life change in her relationship of wanting to try to conceive. I thought that that was a huge success. What about any tips around birth control and birth control questions? Oh, birth control questions. Yes. It's huge, especially postpartum when it's a big issue to want to be on birth control before you're able to go to the mikveh after giving birth. But at the same time, birth control can cause a lot of staining, which then can preclude, preclude you from getting to the mikveh in a timely manner. So it's definitely, I would tell women after they give birth to consult with their yawatzit or their rav if they're comfortable doing that about how best to go about doing that. Because we want, the goal is that we want to keep the staining from the birth control if that happens in the category of staining. And there's all sorts of tricks to the trade to do that that I'm happy to discuss with anybody who would want to call me on that. So that's a tricky situation. And birth control in general is a tricky situation with staining. And we actually owe a debt of gratitude to the women and the rabbis from a thousand years ago, from the time from 2000 years ago, and the hygiene and life circumstances of how they lived, that the rabbis made certain gzerot decrees about what was considered a stain, what was considered a flow, what, what you could ignore, what you had to pay attention to. And we're benefiting now from that with staining from hormonal birth control. Again, it's all based on body lice and bed bugs and different things that we can't imagine living with. But we're benefiting from the women who did live with those things in terms of what we can ignore and what we have to pay attention to. You mentioned how you are available for questions and repeat questions and all of that. What does somebody have to do to annoy you? Like, is that possible? I, I was going to ask you, does anyone annoy you? The only thing that annoys me, and it really does annoy me very much, is when women call me and they start out their call with, I'm so sorry to bother you. <laughs> That's the only thing that annoys me. <laughs> and I think oh. it just goes to show how unempowered women are about the halacha that they have to observe, that they feel like it's bothering somebody to ask a question. And that's my job is to empower you to be able to answer the question, to be able to ask a question, maybe even answer the question in the future if it's a more basic thing for yourself and to have that relationship so that you feel like you have somebody you can call. Like in Pirkei Avot, when we say, make for yourself a rav, that this is why it takes away all suffolk, it takes away all doubt, and you're able to confidently go on your halachic journey of keeping these complex set of halachot. So you're a super academic and intellectually stimulated person. On the other hand, you also, you're a lactation consultant. Yeah, and I'm not a lactation consultant. I'm a volunteer. Volunteer. So you have that mushy. Yes. Um, so I was trained through an organization called La Lachi League as a volunteer. So I'm happy to help women with that as well. Yeah, I had four out of five of my boys at home with midwives, home births. So yeah, I definitely have that side of myself as well. <laughs> you have that side. But you also provide, on one hand, that intellectual access for the women, as well as how much of the job is emotional support. So that's funny, because for me, 
I kind of have to remind myself, like I do care greatly about the women, but like a woman will send me a text. I just had a baby and I'm struggling with this spotting or whatever it is. And because I'm like very cerebral, so sometimes I'll just start writing out the answer and then I'll like look at what I wrote and I'll have to go back and write Mazal Tov on your baby. <laughs> so that, that, so that's something that I have to like coach myself to do, to be part, you know, to be warm. I'm, I'm bedside warm, manner. but to, yeah, bedside manner, which I do do, but I'm so quick to jump to the cerebral intellectual, like what is the halakha? That's actually something we do in our training to become fertility counselors as Yoatzot, is we do a lot of role planning. We have a psychologist who's overseeing the whole thing. And she does role playing with us where we have to pretend to be the Yoatzot or pretend to be the woman calling. And we have to answer with empathy and, you know, with like all of these things and pick up on maybe if there's underlying psychological aspects that not that we could address it because we're not psychologists, although there are some Yoatzot who are, but when to recommend when to refer to a mental health professional or something in those cases to be able to pick up on that. I just want to share on a personal note, when I had my miscarriage, I reached out to a Yoetza. You weren't, I don't know if you were a Yoetza yet at that point, I um, but so. I reached out to Tova. And because who do you reach out to when you have a miscarriage? It's not like something you, yeah. I mean, I don't know about now. So I reached out to her. Somebody probably suggested it. And her first thing was, how do we get you to the mikvah? Her, she was so goal-oriented. Like, what's the next thing to the next thing? And how do we get you there? And this fight energy that I needed <laughs> at that time. And I felt like, oh, somebody's on my side here. Somebody knows what to do. And there, there's a plan. Somebody was there making a plan for me because I was just a mess, obviously. And I wasn't yeah. thinking about mikvah when it was happening. I was just like, what's happening? <laughs> So I, I found that to be a crucial part for me during those beginning stages when it was happening. So I, I wanted to plug that in. Yeah, and, and I should mention her. that in addition to our halakhic training as Yoatzot, we also have a medical curriculum which deals with any aspect of women's halakha that um, intersects with Tarat Mishpacha. So we are trained in, we have had seminars with experts in pregnancy loss and both the medical aspects of it and the psychological aspects of it. So that's, and we all have referrals we can give to people in each of our communities who deal with these on a professional basis as well. So I'm really glad that you were able to reach out and get that help that you needed then. Yeah, that reminds me. I just got a text this week from a young woman thanking me for helping her to get to the mikvah. <laughs> so that was cute. Okay. So I wanted to touch upon two things that I know we're running out of time, but one thing is, I don't know if I, we could keep this on record or not, but I'll bring it up just in case. The rabbi, I believe the rabbi you consult with and our local rabbi, Rabbi Shmenman, doesn't formally, as the shul or personally, doesn't endorse Yotzot. I don't know if that's still the case. So I have a very close and supportive relationship with him. His two older boys and my two older boys were in an underground rock band together in high school. So we go way back. You can find them on Amazon Music and Spotify. They're called the Von Homies. They're very cute. They're all in there. They're all married and in their mid to late, mid twenties now. So he knew me and he knew when I started the program and he was very supportive and even enthusiastic about it. And he actually says to me that when he sees my name on his phone that I'm calling or texting, he tries to get back to me as soon as possible because he knows that he's helping couples get back together or stay together. 
based on what answer, you know, that's his goal in the answers that he gives me. I really feel like he respects me, supports me, encourages me, and is very responsive to me whenever I have a question. And I just feel so privileged to be, I feel like he's mentoring me and I feel really privileged to have that relationship with him. But you're not going to comment on the fact that it's not a publicly supported initiative, which makes well, it feel so right. weird, like this underground right. thing that that is you're 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 supporting me through, except you're never going to endorse. Like, what does that feel like? Well, I like after I became a Yoetzit, so COVID started right after that, and I teach a lot at the shul. I give a lot of shirim, and there was an event coming up that I was teaching alongside a bunch of other men actually and a lot of them were rabbis or professors doctor and so he actually asked me would you like to be listed on the program as Yoetzet Halakha Stacy Goldman and I said yes so if, I think that's an endorsement of source that he was willing to have on the shul literature Yoetzet Halakha Stacy Goldman so I I really I mean he's not opening up a Yoetzet Halakha position in the shul and the community already took care of that in our community we have the Halakha the USAID initiative of Greater Philadelphia, which I actually like, especially since Tova and I are both the USAID. Tova Warburg Sinensky. Yes, that we each have the freedom to consult with the Rebbeim that we feel close with. And so it's it's sort of a, a certain freedom of not being af affiliated with a shul that I think works well in our community. Does this work ever interfere with your shalom bias? No, I think my husband is... This is actually a good story. Soon after I was accepted to the Yoetzet Halakha program, my husband and I went to Israel for Sukkot. So I'd already started the program. And it was full time in the summer where I was living in New York, New Jersey for a couple of weeks. So we were away from each other. And we went to Israel for Sukkot. And Nishmat at the time had a Chanukah Tabait. They had just finished their rooftop, which is really beautiful. And they had a whole celebration with presentations about the different things that Nishmat does from working with Ethiopian women to the Yoatzot. So there was a woman who did a monologue. I thought she was an actress when she first started about how she comes from a family that has a history of breast cancer and she was having fertility issues and she didn't want to go on any drugs because she was so worried about the recurrence of the breast cancer in her family. And the doctors all kept telling her, take drugs. And finally, somebody told her, why don't you call a Yoetzet? And she called the Yoetzet. And the Yoetzet, again, based on everything else we're saying, was able to talk to her in such a way that elicited more information. And she was able to get to the mikvah at an earlier time without the use of drugs, of any kind of hormonal drugs. And after she read this whole monologue, and again, I thought she was an actress, she then stood up and said, and now I'm seven months pregnant. And I'm very grateful to that Yoetzit. So it was her own personal story of how she was able to overcome these challenges and work with the Yoetzit and become pregnant through that. And I was like bawling because I thought it was such a moving story and moving performance. And my husband was like, now I get it. I get what you're doing. I get how you're helping women. And it's, it's amazing. So he's very supportive. Amir, shout out to you because I know you listen <laughs> to the podcast. Talk to me just a few minutes as we wrap up about your Jewish feminist identity and how that interacts with all the different elements of your life. It's funny because I entered Orthodox Judaism like already by definition kind of a feminist because I learned Gemara. 
And I remember like asking a Rebbitzin, I was staying somewhere, if I could borrow one of her husband's Gemaras because I had to look something up. She's like, you can look something up in a Gemara? <laughs> like she was shocked at that. And there, I'm not going to, I don't want to say there aren't educated Orthodox women who grew up from who can look, there certainly are, but it's definitely not the mainstream. So I already entered into this phase. So, but I try my best to be an Ovedet Hashem and to be Tsanua in all that that word means. Shout out to the new book by um, Bracha Paliak and Rabbi Anthony Manning about defining Tsniut in our day, dignity. And I really, I get so much Sipuk from the women that I help and having this knowledge and education. And it's such a schuss and just the unusual path my life took so that even as someone who didn't grow up Orthodox, didn't go to Jewish day school, could still have been in a place to have received this education and this knowledge. And I also feel like it's becoming, if it's not becoming mainstream by the rabbis, by the variety of women who call me, it's becoming mainstream. So it's kind of grassroots in that way. And I think a lot of women might feel more comfortable calling me because they know that I consult with Rabbi Schwimmin, so that gives them a safe space to ask me questions, knowing that that's my Rav. So I, I don't, it just, it is who I am. So I didn't start learning Gemara to make a feminist statement. I started learning Gemara because that's the world I grew up in. It was so nice having this conversation with you. Thank you so much, Stacey. Thank you. Thank you for listening until the end. If you have any follow-up questions, concerns, feedback, please do reach out. We have a WhatsApp group. If you'd like to join, let me know about that as well. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. You can also rate and review the show on whatever podcast app you listen to. This is a Jewish Coffeehouse podcast, so check out the other podcasts, such as Orthodox Conundrum, Chokmat Nashim, and Intimate Judaism. See you next time.